If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes after chapter 2, verse 18 to 26. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18 to 26. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, this too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days... His task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This, also, I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to the person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask you... uh, to have our hearts and our minds corrected. We know that there, we are all sinful and we tend to love things that are your creation instead of you, the creator. And I ask that as we look at this text and we can, you can use it to reveal in our lives just the idols that we may have. And may we turn from them, Lord, knowing that all of these things, all of these idols will not bring any lasting satisfactions. Be with us now as we study your word, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, um, and you give us attentive minds and uh, ears. And Lord, uh, be with me, allow me to speak clearly, um, and Lord, do what you, what you will with this message, Lord. We praise you in your son's name. Amen. Our world is obsessed with work and what accomplishes brings from work. Uh, most of which is for mainly for financial stability, but other people want to work hard because of status and recognition. Uh, some see their jobs as their identity. And I would venture to say, if you were calling a friend or uh, checking in on someone, you would probably ask them the simple question, how is work? Or maybe if you're talking to someone, you might even ask them, what do you do for a living? A lot of what we do defines us. A lot of us define even ourselves by our jobs. Sometimes we even make judgments based on the occupation uh, that someone is, is doing. Solomon here throughout this book has journeyed with, has journey has brought us into his little journey that he's gone through his entire life to show you all of the miserable uh, conclusions that he's found, all the mistakes that he's made. He wants us to uh, walk through this life with him, so to speak. He walked down every road, and every single road ended up in a dead end. He went down Wisdom Street. We see this in chapter 1, verse 12 to 18, how he tried to acquire all the wisdom that there is in the world, and in the end, without God, it was empty. He took the path down Pleasure Boulevard from chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and it was a dead end. He, tried, he thought, oh, if I just indulge myself with all of the things of the world, with all the relationships that I have, with all the material things, then I will have meaning and satisfaction. In the end, he concludes that there is no profit under the sun. 
and last time I preached here for the English service, Solomon walked down Pleasure Avenue. Sorry, he went down Philosophical Avenue. He went down this road thinking that if he just thinks through all the things that the world has to think about, all the things that uh, the world views and debates and arguments and philosophy, that he will find the meaning of life. But in the end, that too is vanity and striving after wind. So for this morning, Solomon again is going to take us into another dead-end road. And under this we will call it the workway. The workway. He's going to show us, just like everything else in the past, that all his other journeys end in a dead end. There is nothing at the end of the road. He will show us that those who attempt to find pleasure in work uh, will end up empty because they are doing these things without the fear of the Lord. Remember Solomon here is looking back at his life, living a, an entire life without God. Some of these things here that he says is, is true, uh, but it's true in a sense that it makes him miserable because he did it without the Lord. It was empty. He goes on this path and reports his findings, and in the end is completely vain. He comes up empty-handed. And throughout this book, Solomon doesn't hold back any punches. He is trying to teach us the foolishness of, of living a life without God. He decides to do that. He decides to live life uh, without the Lord, try to pursue all of these different endeavors. And in the end, without God, there is absolutely no meaning. This book is written as really one long sermon. And uh, this sermon concludes with the fact that we need to fear the Lord. And and I said every time that I would preach through this book, that that is the application. That no matter what you do in life, the only thing that matters most is that you fear the Lord. And we're going to see that. He tells us exactly how it is. That you can work, you can have all this pleasure, but it is meaningless. This, This passage that we're going through, he uses the word labor 11 times. And all that he's achieved through this book ended up being nothing but a vapor. He's seen, um, we see this in the amount of of what he goes through. Uh, So the question for us is, how can we find meaning and satisfaction in our work while honoring to the Lord? How can we honor the Lord with the work that he's given us? How can we uh, delight in the work that he's given us? Remember, Ecclesiastes is a book about correcting an imbalance in our life. Some of us think that we have a lot of pleasure, a lot of material, a lot of things that will be satisfied. But no, the, it's the, the point here in, in the book of Ecclesiastes isn't to say that you can't have any of those things. But what you ha- need to have most is the fear of the Lord. And everything else will line up after that. How can I have a right understanding of work so that it has meaning and it can be glorifying to the Lord? We need to have a clear understanding of the role of work in our lives if we want to glorify God with our work. The end result, with our obedience to Him, is that we will find meaning and joy. Now before I start, I would like to explain the theology of work. Work is good. God established work. He gave work to Adam and Eve to do. He commanded them to to, um, have dominion over the earth. But what makes it difficult is sin. We can... Um, do the thing that we want, our dream job, but it's still difficult because of sin. Um, we are all commanded to work. And if you're a student, that is your job. Your job as a student is to study. You study so you can be trained in certain skill sets so that you can get to work. Don't downplay your own responsibilities. And some of you, I know that you are in the beginning of your career, some of you are in the middle, and others of you at the end. But no matter where you are, Work is going to be hard, even for the job that you love to do. The Bible speaks very poorly against those who choose not to work. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23, it reads, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 19, verse 15, it reads, Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. 
And this principle is picked up as well in the New, in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. It reads, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet, and a, a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Paul here uh, tells us that when we work, we are, uh, we're not dependent on, on other people. We should work with our own hands. Uh, this is a command. In fact, Second Thessalonians 3.10 tells us that for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. Our culture and our sinful nature makes us hate work. It makes us idolize laziness. And that's what laziness is. Laziness is actually an idolization of rest. You understand that when you are lazy, you're saying yes to rest. Rest is a good thing. In the context of work, rest is good. You need to rest. But laziness is saying that I love rest so much that I don't want to do what God uh, commanded me to do. And one way you can be a shining example for Christ in your workplace is that you do your job faithfully. And you do it without any complaint. This is what Philippians 2 tells us, that we need to do all things without grumbling and complaint so that we can be a light in a dark and broken world. And you want to do it with joy, knowing that our boss is, is not the one that pays us, but rather is the Lord. This is what, tell, what Colossians 3, uh, 23 tells us, that we need to work only for the Lord, not just for, for man only. Now, am I saying... Am I saying that, uh, that you have to find a job in order to be saved? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you truly are saved, then you will have a desire to work because you will have a desire to use all your talents and all your gifts for the glory of God. You will have a desire to live faithfully before him. There's a difference between working your way to obtain salvation and the salvation that produces a desire to work for him. As a Christian, we must understand that sin makes us not want to work. Sin makes us want to be lazy. Sin binds your will and desire from doing what you're supposed to do. But the product of our salvation is that we are a new creature. We have new desires. And we have a new will. Which means you can now say no to laziness. If you can't say no to laziness, I have to wonder if you are regenerate. The Spirit should be able to move us to do work. To honor Him with the task that he's given us. Because the Holy Spirit frees us from the bondage of all sin, and therefore we should be able to say no to things like, not just laziness, but every sin under the sun. Now, I do want to clarify, I understand we are in a very difficult time right now. I'm not saying that if you don't have a job, that you're in sin, because I know some of you lost your job because of the circumstances. You're not the person I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who, even in normal circumstances, would not work. These are the people that Proverbs 22 talks about, like uh, Proverbs 22, verse uh, 13. The slugger said, There is a lion outside. I will be killed in the street. A lazy person wouldn't, don't, or making, will make any and every excuse to not do work. So for, for those that are faithful, and, uh, and you might have, again, lost your job because of the circumstance, you're not the one that I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about those that are in regular circumstances, they're so in love with their laziness that they do choose not to find a job. And if that is you, then you need to repent and find a job, any job. Even if that job does not pay you as much as you think or you think that you deserve, you can still honor and glorify the Lord with that job. Don't be prideful to think that there are certain jobs that are beneath you. Because you have to understand, as Christians, we model our life after our Savior. And think about Jesus Christ. Remember our Savior. He's the one who created everything. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Alpha and Omega, the one that spoke everything into existence. And in Colossians, speaks to how the world is still kept together by the power of his word. This King came into the world to be a lowly carpenter. He came to serve those that he created. And if Jesus, the God of the universe, is willing to do that job in, this, in his earthly life, then you and I should have no problem doing any job. Find a job and be faithful in it. 
We must remember that work has its place in our lives, but we also must remember that we must never go beyond the intended boundaries of what God intends. God intends for jobs to be a certain, uh, has a certain meaning to it, but if we add more significance to it, then it will be sin. A footbridge is exactly what it sounds. It's not a bridge that's made of feet or a f- or bridge that's foot-shaped. Rather, a footbridge is, ex- is a bridge that can only work if people walk on it. You can't put any other vehicles on top of it because it's not intended for that. It, there's a certain weight limit to it. Um, I drive a Prius. It is the most wimpiest car on the planet, I think. Uh, but I like the Prius. But if, if I was to drive my Prius onto this footbridge, what will happen is that it will collapse. It will collapse because the, it, it extends the weight of its intended use. Now, if you think of it this way, in terms of our job, it's the same way with our job. Our work is like a footbridge. God designed it for a particular purpose, and it has a particular limit. And if we attempt to add more meaning and significance and weight to it, it will collapse and we will fall into the pit of emptiness. So, as important as work is in our life, it has its limits. And it's because of these limits that we cannot find absolute meaning in it. These are the certain failures about work that will keep our hearts and mind, and uh, they keep them in check about work. Now, I'll tell you right now that if you try to find meaning or purpose and significance and satisfaction in your work, Solomon here is saying, no, you won't find it here. I know in these times that it, uh, some of you are not employed due to our current situation that are beyond your control. While others are you are still privileged to still have a job. But understand, just because you are employed or unemployed, you can still idolize work. The ones that are unemployed, you can idolize work thinking that once I find a job, I will be per- perfectly satisfied and content. And others who do still have a job, you might think, if I just keep my job, then I will be satisfied and, and filled throughout the days and not, depending on the, not dependent on the Lord. Both are wrong because it's, it's, it's a wrong perspective of what work is. So I'm not saying like those who don't have a job to not find a job and those who have a job to quit a job. I'm just saying that we need to recalibrate our hearts and to think biblically about our work. We must correct our thinking when it comes to how we view work. Solomon helps us by showing what work fails to accomplish. Solomon fail, shows us what work fails to accomplish. There are failures and things that, that work cannot provide in our life. And there are certain things, and it's because of these failures that we should not idolize our work. So, uh, our outline today is three failures about work that will make us not love our work, but rather love our Lord. So the first one is this failure in succession. Failure in succession, verse 18 to 21. Verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. People try to find meaning in their work because they think that through their hard work that they can leave some sort of legacy or, or inheritance down to someone else. And uh, yes, they might be able to do that, but by doing so, they realize something, that maybe the person I give it to might not be the best person to receive what that I, all that I have. Um, the next generation, he has no certainty what they will do with it. This result that he realizes that upon death, all that he gives to the next person may not be able to u- utilize it the way that he used it. He hated all that he has accomplished. And what is somewhat hilarious to me, in my mind, when Solomon's writing this, he's like this old, disheveled man with a long beard, and he's just, just tired of life. Because in eight verses before, he talks about how much he is pleased with all of his work. And the eight verses later, he's like, no, no, I hated all my work. I am tired of my work. His labor may have given him some sort of temporal, temporal pleasure and peace, but it quickly faded. It, it faded in eight verses. Nothing that he has gained from his work resulted in anything. He couldn't enjoy any of his fruit. He must give it to someone else. And whether the inheritance is gained by choice or taken away by some unforeseen circumstances, whoever that successor is may inherit all of it and all the results of his labor, but he may not know how to utilize it. 
if there's anything that is obtained through his work is giving to someone who may not fully appreciate the wealth or even know how to use it to begin with. He writes, I, I, I had labored and now I must leave. And there's no exception to this. He, he, he's, he's absolutely certain that there is, uh, that the person next to him, most likely his son, uh, the next person's bloodline will take all of his, all of his success and he has no certainty that his son will do it well. He can't control how he would operate because uh, this person may not understand, the, uh, have the same mind or know how to make the same type of financial decisions, but yet he, well, the successor will have, to take, will have to take over everything that Solomon has. His empire is handed to someone who may not be able to keep up with all that he's able to do, or maybe his successor might. Who knows? That dilemma is what drives Solomon crazy because he doesn't know. The point is that he worked, uh, he's all worked up over the fact that after death, he'll have no control over all that he has. This recognition of his powerlessness uh, frustrates Solomon, and it makes him infuriated. If it, it angers him to the point, uh, to, he angers to his bones, knowing that he will one day lose complete control over all his enterprises. Solomon his blood boiled as he contemplates the reality that he has no idea what the long-term outcome will be of all the things that he's done in this life. This should be a reminder for all of us Christians to not become overly obsessed with amassing wealth for yourself, or amassing things for yourself, because you cannot take it with you in the next life. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21, that uh, this person would start building barns for himself, and he realized he has more stuff, so he builds bigger barns for it. And God says, you're a fool. You're a fool, because today I will take your life. In Job chapter 1, verse 20, tells us that naked you come into the world, and naked you'll leave the world. Verse 19, And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. As wise as Solomon it was, he isn't able to figure out and has no certainty of his successor. This word fool isn't strictly someone who lacks sense, but rather is also someone that is defective morally. And the, the, Solomon said this person will have control over. This word control over, it means to abuse. Um, the one that will come after Solomon is going to abuse all that Solomon has accomplished in his life. And this control, control over means that this person will abuse and take advantage of all of Solomon's wealth and possessions. He's actually acted wisely to acquire everything, but the moment he dies, it'll be given to someone who, who will most likely misuse it. Solomon's son is Rehoboam, and as, we, uh, and as wise as Solomon was, there was no way that he would know what the result was going to be. But we, we do. We have the Bible. We know, we knew, we know what happened. Um, he failed miserably. In 1 Kings chapter 12, he divided, he lost 10 of the uh, nations. The nation was split. The 12 tribe of Israel split to, to t- uh, 10 and, t- uh, and 2. And uh, he used some of the gold that was for the temple, that was designed for the temple, and he, and he gave it to, uh, to the Egyptian army. He, he used it to pay off the Egyptian army. Now, does that mean that it's wrong to have an inheritance you know, or, or to give inheritance? And I do want to speak to some of the elderly folk in our church that it isn't, this isn't to say what Solomon's saying, even though he says he hates uh, all that, that's going on. This isn't to say that you cannot give inheritance because Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21 reads this, inheritance, uh, oh no, sorry, Proverbs 13, 22. It reads, a good man leaves inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And we'll talk more about that in a sec. But you also understand that, yes, giving your inheritance to your child is a good thing, but you also understand there is a, there is a potential danger in doing so as well, because later in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21, it reads, inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. So you can give your, a whole bunch of inheritance to someone, your child, and they may squander it before the the they might squander it before you turn into before your corpse turned to dust. You don't have any clue where and who your stuff goes to and how they're going to use it. A few weeks ago, in one of our 
elder meetings, uh, Bill was talking about how when he was younger, back in his day, he used a typewriter. And he asked, do you guys even know what a typewriter is? Ha ha ha. For sake of this illustration, imagine if Bill had like the Ferrari of typewriters. Imagine he had this, the shiniest typewriter with all the clickety clickety. I don't know anything about typewriters, so I know what they are. I just don't know much about it. Now imagine when Bill goes to be with the Lord and his kids inherit the typewriter, and they're looking at it, and they're like, oh, hey, Grandpa or Dad has this keyboard. Uh, where are the wires? Does it come with a monitor? Where does it plug into? See, the kids may inherit the super nice keyboard, but they may not even know what it is, and they, have no, they might not even know how to use it. And this is what Solomon is trying to get at. His kid might not know what this thing is, what the possession is, even know how to use the thing. Solomon, upon reflection, realizes that this is all vain. Chapter, uh, going back to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 20. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Solomon looks back and he realizes that this is depressing. All the stuff that I have, all the stuff I get, that, that I've worked hard for will be given to someone and he, he might mess this all up. And yet, this phrase here, completely despair, literally means to turn to despair. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament that this word is used with this type of tense. In English, it doesn't, it, this is as close as it can get, but the idea is that you just go from 180, it's just 180. It goes from like absolutely happy and joyful to miserable. And that's how Solomon feels. He realizes that he's completely despaired and depressed. This is one of those weird reversals in scripture that uh, they brought, uh, what brought him great happiness is now bringing him great misery. Why is that? It's because he realizes how vain it is. Now understand the Jewish mind, passing down uh, your possessions and your land and everything is a great deal to the Jews. And whether it's uh, their land or, or animals or whatever, these things, are, these things matter to them. And it kind of matters to us too. We understand what that means. Um, but Solomon thought that if he worked hard enough that he can leave this legacy for, and his, his whole bloodline would be, would be secured for all of time. He wanted the kingdom that he reigned over for all of these years continued to do so even after he's gone so that other people can look back and say, this is the work of Solomon. But we know in history that it doesn't work out that way. The entire Israelites were, were exiled from the land. All of his work, even after two generations past Solomon, things were already going really bad. Verse 21. When there is a man who has, has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, there he gives his legacy to one who has, no, who has not labored with them. This, too, is vanity and a great evil. He thinks about what is about to happen to him and what has already happened to some of, perhaps some of his contemporaries, other kings in the world. He sees how other kings, when they die, they have to give it to their kids and their kingdom falls apart. He realizes, that's going to happen to me. That's going to happen to my legacy. That's going to happen to all the things that I possess. Solomon ends this verse by saying that there is some sort of injustice knowing that someone else will take all of his work, all of his possessions that he didn't work for. But no matter how unfair it seems to him, he has no choice. This will happen to all of us. This, and he sees this as the great evil. It has been said that we should always leave a, the world better than we found, that, that we found or that we've entered in from. And all that we do must give future generations a better place and leave it for them. And Solomon's saying, well, good luck with that, because it's not going to happen. There is no way that will happen. Solomon probably saw, again, all of these other things happening with other nations, and he concludes that he is no different, and, and, and we are no different. Solomon here is speaking of the absurdity of attempting to try to do anything in this life with any lasting significance. He gives a, he, he, he gives a tangible example of his entire empire. A person can toil, labor, and exhaust himself tirelessly in order to obtain all that the money can buy in this life, but only to find that it will be forced from him and leave it to someone who cannot keep, his, keep and carry on his legacy, even though he acted wisely. And there is no certainty that you and I can do that for this world as well. We cannot leave this place better than it was when we, when we, than when we found it. This hopeful notion that all of your work will, will have some sort of lasting impact on the world 
is motivated, is if that is what is motivating you to work hard in this world, it is meaningless. And if so, you must understand that it is useless and vain. Your hope can't be in what you do. So why do people obsess over their work? Why do you obsess over your work? Sometimes people are obsessed over their work because they're trying to find meaning in the wrong places. In the case of leaving a boatload of things behind for the next generation, they think that leaving a legacy behind will make sure that the future generation will remember them. Solomon is saying that your legacy will not last. If you attempt to set your entire life so that your kids and your grandkids will be well off, there is no certainty that that will be the case. It is absolutely vain. Solomon and Scripture both affirms that. So then what is the solution? Well, don't work thinking that you can pass this on, and don't work thinking that the, t- the, the, the kids of tomorrow will be able to do well. Just work for the glory of God. Fear the Lord, because death will come and remove all of the things that you worked, in, worked for in this life. Not only is failure to pass down all that you have from your work is absolutely useless, but there is also a failure to rest when you try to find meaning in your own work. Our second point, failure to rest, verse 22 to verse 23. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Solomon probably thought, if I have all my money, if I have all my, my wealth, I can rest peacefully. I can go to sleep. Fine. And some of you might be thinking the same way. That if I have a certain amount of money in my bank account, a certain amount of savings in my 401k, then I will be good. You want to make enough money so that you don't have to worry about money. And you think that in your wealth, it will be some sort of ambient in your life. But it turns out that this desire is actually making you into insomniac. Solomon's obsession with work made him unable to rest. He can't rest because he, he's, he's, he, he can't rest, which leads him to be uh, impatient and crummy and stressful and paranoid uh, because he knows he, can't, he needs to maintain this if he, if he wants to have it all. He, wants to, he, has to keep call, he has to keep thinking about ways to keep all of his money or, or make more money. Solomon, even later in this book, says that there'll be those, like wealthy people will have leechers after them. You can't even go to sleep and trust your closest friend with money because they may take him from you. Someone, a wise older person once said, if you, uh, you know you found a good friend and a true friend, if you could leave your wallet and your wife with them and leave them alone with them and come back with everything intact. All, uh, that everything is the way that you left it. That's how you know you found a good friend. Solomon probably didn't have any friends. He had a thousand wives, but it didn't mean much to him. They were all probably interchangeable in his own mind. Uh, he had all the wealth, but he was trying to control it, but he knew that there will be people that will try to take it from him. Verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor, and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Solomon asked what the end result is. It's, it's, it's nothing. There is no result for this. Solomon, by asking this question, is saying that, that a person can spend their life, their entire life, laboring and working, only to, in the end, lose it all. The point is not to focus on the wealth, but rather focus on the man, uh, the, oh, sorry, focus on the main thing and the end of life. We need to focus on the man, Jesus Christ, which is the main thing. And we understand that at some point, all the things in this life will come to an end. Think about when you're, if you were a student, or when you were a student in the past, uh, you worked hard. Let's say you were in high school, you worked hard to get into a good college. And when you got into a good college, you stayed up and you worked hard so you could find a good job. And you, find a, you finally get that job you want, you have to work even harder to keep it. And it just, it's just this endless cycle. And some people think it's, it's somehow virtuous to sleep little so they can work more. No, in reality, some people don't sleep because they can't sleep. They, want, they may want to sleep, but they can't because they are idolizing their work. They're enslaved to their own work. And on the other hand, perhaps some people stay up at night because they are so worried and paranoid that they are unable to provide for themselves. And you know, in the U.S., technically, you are by default wealthy. Even the poorest person here in America is wealthier than most people in the world. If you have a if you, know, if you have a place where food, you know where food comes from, your own food, or even spare clothes, or place some sort of shelter over you, you're considered worthy and relative to a lot of people in the world. Solomon here is saying that whether you're extremely wealthy 
or you're extremely poor just getting by, in the end, it will not matter because you will die. Notice the familiar phrase at the end, under the sun. You can imagine Solomon just, um, pu- pu- just thinking about all this. It's just stressed out because he realized it's, it's meaningless. Verse 23, because all his days, his ta- all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There's a reality that Solomon is bringing to light that a person who wants, who works obsessively, are both physically and mentally drained. But there is no rest because they spend their lives and they, they spend their time worrying about the same things over and over again, just trying to keep all that they have. And this is a double negative. It's painful and, and grievous. And there are those that work and know that uh, they work. They just clock out, clock out and they stop. But though there are some people who idolize their work and they worship their work and they take control over them and they are obsessed by it. They are actually enslaved to their own work 24-7. They, may, they can't find any rest because work demands them to not rest. Work idolatry or work idolizing makes a person restless. And at some point, Solomon concluded that that is meaningless. This obsession with work is meaningless. He is frustrated with his work, not only uh, because they won't give him any lasting rewards, but he can't even give him any temporal rest. He can't find any rest in the moment. That's how vain it is. Look at how you view your own job. Do you ever, do you have control over or does it have control over you? Do you have control over your job or does your job have control over you? Do you view your work as, um, as a profession that God has given you to serve him and support the, your family and the church? Or do you see it as something more than that? Or do you view it as, as your identity? You work hard so you might maintain a certain lifestyle uh, so you can have a certain pedestal in society. You, you, you try to... Uh, you slave over your work only to become a slave to your work. You understand that when you do that, you will not find any satisfaction, you will not find any rest, and, you will, and at the end of your life, you will realize that you wasted some of your best years just pursuing your work. As you lay down at, light, at night, unable to sleep because of your enslavement, what you need to do is contemplate the reality that Solomon has right now, which is that it is all vain and you need to fear the Lord. You work so you can rest, but you can't rest because of your work. If you have a moment of clarity, you realize that all that you're doing in this life is absolutely vain. You work, you work, you work, and then you die. Obsession or enslavement to anything in this life will make it hard for you to rest because at the end of the day, you will wonder, what is the point of all of this? It isn't saying that it isn't the never-ending toil of work that is going to keep you up at night, but the reality that all of the you do has no lasting significance. The only way for you to enjoy life and the work of your labor that God has given you is not to love your work, but be content with all that God has given you. So so not only is work failure in terms of giving succession to someone else, but there's failure in rest. But lastly, there's also a failure in enjoyment. There's a failure in enjoyment, verse 24 to 26. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. This, this section marks the first end of this, uh, the first of six. There's six of these statements that sound like this, um, where it's like a little bookmark, a bookend, uh, or a chapter end. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 12 uh, to 15 earlier. And then here in 22, and then from chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, and then chapter 8, to 15, and verse 15, and then chapter 9, 7 to 10, and, 11, and then at the end, chapter 11, verse 9, 10. All these are just summary statements that Solomon makes to sum up all that he said so far. And in, in here, he realizes what you need if you want to enjoy life is to fear the Lord. You can't have any meaning unless you fear the Lord. Each of these summary statements emphasize an important aspect of life. And, ex- and if you accept life as a gift from God, and then and acknowledge it, then you'll have meaning. You'll find satisfaction. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. In a lot of ways, Solomon is saying to enjoy the simple things in life. 
enjoy life. He begins by saying that there is nothing better. A person can enjoy life by simply enjoying the labors of all that he has worked. If you have a job, you work, you have food, enjoy the food. If you buy something, enjoy it. Know that it's a fleeting pleasure, but you can still enjoy it. A person can enjoy the simple things in life of all that they've labored because they know that they're all from the Lord. But a person who's just obsessed with his work, you won't find any enjoyments. If a person can find enjoy, fulfillment, joy, and meaning in their work, they need to enjoy life as the opportunity it presents itself. In God's grace, we get to enjoy aspects of this life in a fallen world. Uh, we, there's this phrase, carpe diem, which means seize the day. This is what Solomon is advertising and advocating, that we should seize, seize the day, enjoy life, enjoy uh, life because it's, it's fleeting. Enjoy the things that you have in this world. You need to cherish and be thankful to the Lord because these are all part of God's good gift to us, to his creatures. Um, living in a fallen world means that you won't find meaning in them, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. And in a lot of ways, Solomon is just saying, don't take life so seriously. Don't be so obsessed with your work that you can't enjoy the things that are in front of you. Enjoy your life. These moments of joy that comes into our lives, Solomon argues, is actually from the Lord. Is why he ends this verse by saying, by using this phrase, the hand of God. The little blessings of life is something that we need to take full advantage of because life is hard. Life in general is a very hard place to live, but you can still enjoy those little moments that God has given us. Often people work hard to find pleasure in the finer things in life, when in reality, sometimes the greater joys are in the simple things in life. Solomon challenged you to find happiness, temporal happiness, in what you have instead of what you don't have. This is really a call for us to be content. It's a challenge for us to, to be content with all that God has given us. Solomon's saying that you can enjoy what you have. You need to learn to delight and, and be content in what, the, in what God has given you through the work that he has also given you. The way for us to truly enjoy life and enjoy the work that God has given us is to work for his glory. We work for him. We work knowing that our boss is the Lord, as I said in Colossians 3, verse 22. It's easy for us to be caught up in the, the, our career goals or our deadlines or our paychecks, and we sometimes forget that we are working for the Lord. And we need to ask ourselves, is my job, is my attitude at work, is it pleasing to him instead of, is this going to help me advance in my career or is this going to help me get a bigger bonus? No, our main emphasis should always be, is what I'm doing honoring to the Lord? All work, no matter how mundane or difficult, the work is, we're ultimately working for him. And, and it's because of that, that's where we find meaning. A Christian, we must, as Christians, we must understand that working for Christ and for his kingdom, this is our job. And as we toil under the sun, we must be toiling for the, for the, uh, toiling for the sun. So let me rephrase that. As we toil under the sun, S-U-N, we must be toiling for the sun, capital S. O-N, verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? God is a source of not only um, food, but he's also the only one that can give enjoyment in life. And both are from the Lord. If you are someone that has food, uh, but no God, you may have a little temporal pleasure, but you won't find lasting enjoyment. And later you realize, oh, that was a waste. All the people that put food on Instagram, they realize that after they take a picture, that's it. And after they eat it, that's it. But as Christians, we can delight in it longer. We realize, oh, this is, our, this is the Lord made all of these little uh, intricacies of food and look at all the colors and the flavors and we can taste all of these things. We can do all things for his glory. This is what 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. It does is more than just the food itself, but it has more even eternal significance because it shows us how great our God is. He created our taste buds to enjoy food. He, he created the food and the elements in it so that we could enjoy it. The basic enjoyment of reality only makes sense if we know that God is the one that created all of this. Now, isn't it interesting that, that prosperity and comfort often shows us how little we depend on God? I'd venture to say that in this COVID situation, that most of you are probably really thankful for the food that's given to you. But like you take that sinner's prayer seriously now when it says, 
give us our day, our daily bread. You really do pray for your daily bread, and you are thankful for that bread. Trials often show us that even the work that we work so hard at obtaining and maintaining can be gone in a moment. It is during these hard times that we must, um, we must have some self-reflection. We must look beyond our own ability to provide for ourselves, but remember that God is providentially providing for us. And it's because of that we can thank the Lord in all the meals that he's given us. He knows what we need, and he allows us to have enough so that we can continue to depend on him. Verse 26, For to a person who is good, in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. In some ways, this verse ends in the way they began. Solomon uh, is saying that someone else is going to benefit from his work, or another person is going to benefit from another person's work. The difference is that between this... uh, the difference is that, is, is that those who are right and those who are wrong. He's, he's making this, this, this distinction here between those that are blessed by God because they fear the Lord and those that are going to lose everything because they hate the Lord. He makes this distinction here. Uh, those that are right in God's eye will receive wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Solomon received this back in 1 Kings. He, he was blessed with all of these different things. He received all of them, but he squandered it by walking away from the Lord and in sin. Uh, those who belong to God will find peace and pleasure. If you live for God's pleasure, you will be greatly blessed, and with and, uh, and and he will be blessed with all spiritual blessings that only true believers that love Him will understand. On the flip side, those that are sinners, those who have not uh, a right relationship with the Lord, their reward will be a loss. Sinners who fail to acknowledge God in all that they do will only lead them to total frustration because of the vanity of life. The sinner's, in life, the, sinner, the sinner's life is dominated by acquiring and accumulation, only to have to leave it behind to someone else. And for them, all that they have obtained in life will be given to those that are, to those that are living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. This verse sounds so strange because it indicates that the believers will receive all the good from the wicked. And I read uh, earlier Proverbs 13.22 where the, 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 those are wicked people. Their, their gifts and all of the things that they've worked for will be given to the righteous person. Now, does this actually happen? Are all, if, all, if the wicked people die, are all the Christians in the world all of a sudden will be blessed? Well, it doesn't always happen. I don't think it always happens. At least I, can't, I can think of certain scenarios in Scripture where that happens. But it doesn't always happen all the time. Sometimes the labor of the wicked will somehow be a blessing to those that love God, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we don't know how it looks, but it's just the point I think Psalm's trying to make is that it is infuriating. The point in this whole part is that you have no control of where it goes. Maybe the wicked person doesn't want their wealth to go to the, to the ones that fear the Lord, but it ends up going to, going to. They have no control over what they will do after they die. This book it reveals that things that they have is vain. The greater point is that both the rich and the poor, uh, and those who love and hate the Lord, all the labor is in vain, because death will be the end of it. The moment a person begins to work, uh, the, sorry, the, the moment a person begins to worship their work is the moment that their work will destroy and drain their life. And this is a call for us to check our affections because there are certain aspects of work that's going to fail us. We can't give it to someone successfully. Uh, we won't be able to sleep. We won't be able to enjoy it. These are areas in our life, that, these are area, aspects of work that's going to make us not want to cherish work the, the way that we might want to. You need to work because you want to do it out of a love for the Lord, out of a fear for the Lord. You work hard for him. So do you love your work more than you love the Lord? Christ said that you cannot serve two masters. What's worse than being a slave to our work physically is that we are enslaved spiritually to our work. Solomon wants us to tie everything that we have and everything that we do back to the Lord. This isn't to say that you can't enjoy life, but it's just that you cannot find it in, you just can't buy it. This isn't to say that you can't enjoy life, is, is that is the point is that you can't, there are things in life that money can't buy. Money can't buy salvation, money can't buy meaning, money can't buy satisfaction. 
Money gives us some sort of temporal relief. In fact, the toils and vain, uh, the vanity of our work should make us realize that there is something greater. Why am I not being satisfied? Because there's something in, uh, in us that wants to be satisfied, but can't be found in this world. And that's been that way since the fall. In our exhaustion from our work, we must remember the work of our Savior, who had limitations. He came into work, he had to rest, he had to work. But he worked a perfect life so that you and I can be made right with him. In some ways, this phrase that the, uh, the wicked will lose everything, it's opposite for us. For us as Christians, we were wicked people, but because of Christ, if we place our faith in him, we gain everything. Christ gives us his righteousness. Christ gives us an inheritance that is not just from this world, and it's different from the things in this world. The inheritance in this world will perish, but the inheritance that God will give us is something that will last for all eternity. So in order for us to enjoy work, in order to truly find meaning in our work, we must remember first the work of our Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world and died for our sins so that we can no longer be separated from the, uh, from the Lord and so that our eyes can be open so that we can see how the world is supposed to be. and We can see how work is supposed to be. It's only then that we'll find meaning, because all meaning derives from the Lord. And if we are separated from Him, then all life is meaningless. So I hope that if this is you, if you are someone who is a believer, enjoy your work. Do it as an act of worship to him. But if you're not a believer and you're trying to find meaning in your work, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. You're just going to be miserable for the rest of your life. And what's worse than that is that you're going to die. And if you die without Christ, you'll be miserable for all of eternity. You've exhausted yourself physically and you're going to be tormented for your sins in hell. But the gospel offers salvation, that if you place your faith in him today, you believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection, that you, don't, you can finally find meaning that you've been looking for. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and allowing us to remember the vanity of life and at the same time the, the temporal joys that we get from it. Lord, may we strive to work for your glory. May we do things without grumbling or complaining. And may you receive all the glory with the labors. Uh, of our hands. Thank you for this time. Allow us to check our hearts and make us worship, be worshipers of only you, Lord. We praise you in your son's name. Amen.